Well, good morning. Thank you for joining the class this morning. The, the topic is the C4 principle. This is the title of my most recent book, and I'm going to continue to take you through the book. And today, we're going to be talking about good works, biblically defined, and basically the an explanation of the C4 principle. For those of you that may not be familiar with this, uh, here's the cover of the book and the table of contents. Um, and a graphic showing the model, the C4 model, and a QR code if you would like to go to uh, the page to get more information and, and purchase the book, you can take a picture of that QR code. So again, I want to thank you for being on the call, and let's jump in and, and just uh, begin to discuss. We're going to discuss the chapter here. Hopefully you can see the mouse showing the good works defined biblically. And then we'll do the explanation of the principle itself. I'll probably spend most of my time on the good work section because that's where I see the most confusion um, and most misunderstanding. Uh, I think many of you have heard the C4 principle in various settings. You, you have some sense of that. So I'll spend a little bit less time on that. So to start out on thinking, thinking biblically about good works, uh, we have to think correctly about how works relate to faith. It's very easy to be confused in our culture, and it's very easy to be accused of being works-oriented. Please understand, I do not believe the Bible teaches us in any form that we can ever do enough good works to merit eternal life. We can never solve the problem of sin and death in and of ourselves. Another way to say that is we cannot self-save. We are hopelessly lost in trespasses and sins and cannot do anything about it. So I believe the, the Bible teaches the, that there is a relationship between grace and faith and works, and this is the model I would like to use to try to explain it. It all starts with the left, regeneration. Regeneration is being born again. Uh, we are born dead in trespasses and sins, and dead people can't do anything. One person said the only thing a dead person can do is stink, and that's probably a good way to think about it. We kind of stink in our fallen condition, but when the Holy Spirit sovereignly touches us and we are born again, our spirit man comes alive for the first time, then we have life for the first time. Now we've had biological life, but real life, spiritual life doesn't come until you are regenerated. Once you're regenerated, you can respond to that reality and you will respond in faith. And once you have faith in you, you have then the responsibility to live out that faith. And that's what good works is all about. Good works do not save. Good works, though, however, reveal that one is saved. So that's important we get that clear on that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I think, is a great text to make this very clear. For you are, being, you are saved by grace. That is the gift of God through faith. Faith is the evidence that the Holy Spirit has regenerated you. You don't conjure up faith. And the real evidence that you have faith is you live it. If you claim to have faith and you don't live it, you have no validation of that reality. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6 makes that very clear. Reading on here in Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, 
not from works so that no one can boast. Faith is not a work. It does not come from us, our human potency. That is our fleshly power that's innate in every human being to, to make choices. That does not include the capacity to express faith in Christ. You have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So when you're born again, the Holy Spirit brings life to your spirit, spirit man, and he now gives you life internally and gives you the capacity to express faith. So this is how I understand it. You know, works is the sign, the indicator of the reality of faith at work in someone, and faith is the indicator that they have been born again. So hopefully that's clear. So now let's talk a little bit more about the challenge. You know, how do we how do we do good works and what are good works? Well, first we have to deal with the challenge of sin. We have to be very clear. Total depravity is largely what the Old Testament teaches us. In fact, it's probably one of the greatest lessons of the Old Testament is that man can't. Man can never self-save. Man can never do enough good works to merit favor with God. Man cannot solve the, the problem of his fallen condition. It is impossible. And a good summary text to think about this is Paul's text in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you can think about this. All are born in that state. You don't have to do anything to be in that state. You will. You are in that state, and you will manifest it by how you live unless you're born again. That's the only way out of that condition. So this means that one can never meet God's standards through his own works. One can never self-save. This is what Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus in that famous interaction when Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and trying to understand truth. You could tell he never never really got it out, but Jesus knew what he was trying to ask. And he said to him very point blank, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's very explicit. It is unequivocal truth. This is clear. This a regeneration must happen or you can't even see the kingdom of God. And in two verses later, he says, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So please understand, it's not only seeing, but entering. You cannot do it unless you have been born again. Now, some people might say, well, what about common grace? Well, yes, we have common grace. And that's why even pagans can survive as pagans in a fallen world. That's, that's, that's a gift of God to everyone. It enables us to have a fairly safe environment, and we can live among many people who don't know the Lord. That's a gift, but, but common grace only goes so far. And here's a, here's a great text that illustrates this point. The ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. They stumble in them because they're trying to walk in them, but they don't have enough grace to walk faithfully and consistently and enduringly in the principles of God. They have some grace. The fool can actually look wise when he keeps his mouth shut. He has the grace to keep his mouth shut. The fool has the grace to be kind to somebody. He could practice the golden rule at times. He could show wisdom because he works. He knows he's got to feed himself. These are, these are gifts from God and God provides opportunities for them. He provides them gifts and talents that they can use. He lets them have certain amount of grace 
to have certain level of success, but it is not salvific. It does not lead to regeneration. We have to understand, therefore, common grace doesn't produce real good works. Keep in mind what a good work is. Good is a divine attribute. God is good. If it's a divine attribute, when you put the word good as a modifier of the word works, you're talking about a work that aligns with the character and nature of God. That's what a good work is. A good work is not what we think a good work is. A good work is what God says a good work is. So it's not up to us to define good works. We are to discern the good works. So we've got to be clear on that. So good works then are the fruit of the Holy Spirit empowering us to die to ourself. That's what enables us to align with God, his will, his way, his timing, and his glory. That's the only way we can do that. So a great text to consider is John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you, that is his disciples, are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. But you can do nothing without me. We have to abide in the vine where he bears the fruit through us. So our works are not our works. They're his works being done through us. So that's what a good work looks like. Now, a good work is going to be inherently aligned with truth. At all, real truth comes from God. There's no other source of real truth. Now, Satan and the forces of evil, the forces of the spirit of Antichrist, they will steal truth to use it for their, their purposes, which ultimately will be overturned. They will not endure in truth. They just use it to try to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So we have to know a good work is fundamentally something that aligns with truth as God defines it. So and there are two kinds of truth out there, particularly in scripture, there's unequivocal truth, truth that was absolutely clear. There's no question about what it means. And the, the body of Christ for 2000 years has been generally in agreement on this truth. There's also equivocal truth. Equivocal truth is truth that is not quite as clear. It's there's, there's differences. We have debates about this truth. So let me just give you some examples of this. Uh, unequivocal truth would be things like the creation mandate. That's unequivocal. That's why God created man to be his ruling agents on earth. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It is right there in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. It is very, very clear. How about the Ten Commandments given in Exodus 20? Again, very, very clear. Are the greatest commands. To love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and spirit. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Given in Matthew 22, quoting Deuteronomy 6. Unequivocal truth. It is no question about that. The Christian church, the body of Christ has agreed on this for 2,000 years. Now, there are other things that we have to deal with in life that Scripture is not as clear on. That's called equivocal truth, meaning there can be differences, like the use of debt. Is that okay or not okay? Is it righteous or sin? Which one is it? Well, it gets more complicated there. Or how about alcohol consumption? Is that okay or not okay? How do you deal with that? And one of my favorite ones is how to respond to deranged thinking. You may say, well, what is that all about? Well, 
uh, a deranged thinker is someone who thinks foolishly, uh, an ignorant person. So in Proverbs, it tells us how to deal with a deranged thinker. In one verse, it says, uh, answer a fool according to, a fo- according to his folly, or, or answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Okay? You answer a fool. The next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him yourself. So what do you do? Do you answer or don't answer? You've got two, in, in successive verses, you've got two ways to respond to a fool, but they're different. They're actually the opposite. In one case, you do this. The other case, you do that. So what do you do here? Well, this is a great picture of how equivocal truth works. Equivocal truth has to be contextualized. It's where the Holy Spirit personalizes things to a situation, to circumstances. See, the Word of God can be very personal. So when you have equivocal truth, you need help in how to get to discerning what God is saying. If it's unequivocal truth, you just obey. You just do it. There's no question about it. But equivocal truth, you've got to have a process. So here's God's process. I call it the ask-seek-knock process. It's the method of ethical reflection. How do you begin to discern what God is saying? So Matthew 7, 7 gives us the uh, this process. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. So ask is prayer. You start out facing an issue. Let's say you're facing an issue of debt. Should I go into debt or not? You start praying about it. All right. Secondly, you seek. You begin to study scripture personally and with your godly teachers. You engage your commissioning agents, your spiritual parents, those who've been charged by God to oversee you and guide you and direct you into alignment with God and your advisors who are peers who can help you think biblically. You get all this counsel, this direction, and you're putting it together, and then a door shows up, a door of opportunity. You drop back in prayer and knock on the door in prayer, asking, Lord, is this the door you want me to go through? The door meaning, is this the answer to the question that I'm seeking you about? So this is a process of ethical reflection. So anytime you have an equivocal issue, that is an issue that the scripture is not addressing unequivocally, it's addressing it equivocally, then you drop into this ethical reflection process to discern what God is saying. Please notice it's not an independent process. You can't do this by yourself. As an orphan, you have to seek the Lord, you have to get counsel, and you need direction from godly leaders and authority figures in your life. I hope you can hear that. So let me go on and give you some more thoughts about how to zero in on good works. So I've got some imagery here. You've got, you see, I've got a circle on the on this page here in the upper left-hand corner of the slide. It says could. The black part is what you could do. And then you see I've got a little bitty green circle in the lower uh, part of the, of the circle that says should. Should is part of the could, but you know it's not all of the could. It's just part of the could. So what that should rec- represents, it represents the things that you should do. So just walk through this. Good works means are equal to the will of God. The will of God equal to the works one should do. So good works for any of us are the things we should do 
not just the things we could do. And I'm going to say this, that sin is anytime you are doing things outside the should circle. Anytime you're outside the should circle, in the could circle, you are in sin. Now, that's startling. We're not used to that because we're used to thinking we can define what a good work is. If we think it's good, we got we assume that God thinks it's good. That's not necessarily true. We have to learn that he's the definer of good works. We are the ones charged to discern his definitions, discern his directions and his guidance. So some things to think about as you're considering equivocal issues are things like this. Should you support world missions? Should you go on a mission trip? Should you volunteer at your local church? And if so, what would you do? Should you give to the poor? Should you care for widows or feed the homeless, provide disaster relief, offer hospitality in your home, give pastors a gift at Christmas time? These are all things you could do. And uh, frankly, I think they're all things you, sh you should consider, but you don't just automatically say yes to these. You have to ask the Lord. It's equivocal. You've got to discern. You don't just support any missions. You just don't volunteer to do anything at a local church. You don't just give any poor person something or care for a widow. You've got to look at the circumstances and what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. You certainly want to be open that all of these things could be good works for you in a certain situation at a certain time, but they are, they are not things that you would call unequivocal. They are equivocal issues. They require great discernment. So let me give you some other examples of, of how you got to think correctly about good works. How about your calling? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. You see, good works is our work assignment. It's the things, it's the will of God for our lives that we do according to the ways of God and the time of God for the glory of God. Those are the good works. Now, you don't know all those things. Nobody does. We are continually in the process of trying to discern that. Every day we're trying to walk out our calling in every jurisdiction, in our family, in our personal life, in the workplace, in the Christian community, and in the public policy that we're part of, the communities we're part of. We're always seeking to discern our assignments, the shoulds, in every jurisdiction. So we have to be recognized God is at work in every jurisdiction to guide and direct us. He's got a will, and our job is always to discern his will. Or how about the ecclesia, the local ecclesia? Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another. This, that's right, it says stir. It says agitate one another to love. Love is sacrificially serving the purpose of God in another and good works. You see, we are called to come together to help discern the call of God on each other and help us align with that call. We should be doing that as a community. We should be doing that with each other. Sadly, today, because we generally don't meet like this, we don't have settings where it's just those that the leaders of your community believe are truly Christians. We have large meetings where anyone can come. We don't meet to specifically discern the call of God on each other's lives and to help each other find that call and to challenge each other as we're walking that call out. 
So I submit we don't obey Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 well at all. We have no vision for that in our current paradigm of Christianity. So this is robbing us of our ability to really live out faithfully the good works God has called us to do. Or how about evangelism? Evangelism today has been reduced to sharing a message. The four spiritual laws or some track that you, you like with someone trying to get them to make a profession of faith, say the sinner's prayer, and then you get them baptized. And that's how we view evangelism. Well, when Jesus first started explaining his good news of the kingdom of God, which was his gospel, and you do understand our gospel should be his gospel, he's first trying to explain it. He addresses evangelism right out, right out of the box. He explains it. So he says this, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16 in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world, referring to his followers. He's talking to his disciples whom he's picked. Uh, and he makes it very clear in John 15, I chose you, you didn't choose me. So he's picked these disciples and now he's sharing with them how they're going to be evangelists for him. You're going to be the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. So how do you let your light shine? They, You let your shine them shine through your good works. He says, so that they may see your good works. When they see you living very discerning of your calling, what you've been, what you have should to do, not what you could do, but what you should do. You living that that strategically, that intentionally, they will see that and know you couldn't do that in and of yourself. God must be in you, empowering you to do that, and they give glory to the Father. They don't give glory to you; they give glory to Him. So this is how evangelism is done through good works. We think evangelism has to be done by talking. No, it's done first by living, and then sometimes you may have an opportunity to talk. And when you are given that opportunity, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us we should be prepared to give an account for the reason for the hope that's in us. So we must live a holy life, manifesting hope, and be ready for those who see us living in that hope when they ask the question, we can answer the question. But we, the predicate to that is living a holy life. A holy life is a life lived aligned with the shoulds that God has called you to do. His will, his way, his timing, and his glory. Well, you could go ahead and continue to deal with equivocal issues in every area of life. There are questions in every area of life that addresses everything, your personal life, your family, your workplace, Ecclesia, your workplace life. You could go on with public policy. All these things are issues that require ethical reflection, discernment about what God is saying to you about what you should do. And Everyone's shoulds are going to be a little different because we all have different assignments in the body of Christ and in the meta narrative. All right, so this is good works. You got to think biblically about good works, or you're never going to be able to live out the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory, well. So now I want to shift over and do a little explanation of the C4 principle, and I'm going to use Acts 6 to do this. Now, I explain Acts 6 later in the book. 
So I'm just uh, pulling that ahead to use it now because I think it's a powerful text that illustrates a number of really interesting points about the power of the C4 principle to really guide us into alignment with the will of God. So in Acts 6, this is the uh, the record of the first ecclesia in Jerusalem. There's a lengthy record of the formation and the initial organization of the ecclesia in Jerusalem that goes through the first seven chapters in the book of uh, book of Acts, verse six, uh, yeah, seven chapters. In chapter eight, they start take, taking it outside of Jerusalem. But first seven chapters, it is all what's going on in Jerusalem. And the early church had its problems. Uh, they, they weren't perfected. They weren't fully sanctified. They were people who came to know the Lord. They came to know that Jesus was Lord in Christ. They came to know the Holy Spirit is the empowering agent through regeneration and now empowerment to live. So they were learning these truths, but they're still very young and very immature, and they're not very great at living it out, so there's a problem. Now, in those days, reading here in the text, when the disciples were increasing in number, and I underline that for a reason, because pay attention, that we're going to look at the, at the last verse, and you're going to contrast increasing in number with the last verse here in a few minutes. A complaint by the Hellenist Jews, these are Jews that are from Greek-speaking countries. They were part of the dispersion. The Jewish nation had been dispersed because of their sin, their unfaithfulness to God. And now God is redeeming you know, what they lost here in the New Covenant. So these Hellenist Jews had come back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. They were there when the Ecclesia was birthed on the day of Pentecost, so they continued to stay in Jerusalem to be part of this first Ecclesia. So they're there, and the, the widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, that distribution there is the word diakonia, which means to, we translate that with the word minister. That's the, this is the, the Greek word diakonia that's translated in English, minister. So it's interesting that here you have diakonia used clearly in reference to food distribution. And the 12, that is the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right, meaning pleasing, that we should give up and leave our calling of proclaiming the word about Jesus being Lord in Christ to serve, that is to, now you have the verb form of diakonia, diakonio, and so it's, again, it's, we, we have in English, we have a noun and a verb form. We have minister and to minister. So this is the verb form, to minister. So now we're using diakonia in reference to teaching the word compared to diakonia in use to, uh, for food distribution. Two different ways diakonia used, is used in two successive verses. So he tells them, here's how we're going to solve this problem. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out, that is, select. Paul, from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, that would be men of great character, and of wisdom, wisdom is a skill to do something, that's capability, whom we will appoint to this duty, that's commissioning. So you have the C4 principle right here used to pick out the men that would fix this problem that would bring order out of chaos. And that's fundamentally what kingdom work is. What's modeled in Genesis 1, when God starts out with a universe without form and void, he puts form into it. He puts order into it. He puts paradigms into it. He puts symmetry into it. 
He puts order into his creation and that he models for us how he wants us to function because we live in a world that's become disordered because of sin. And now we are agents of order. So you appoint these people, these four people to do this kingdom work. And he goes on in verse four, but we, that is we apostles, we devote ourselves to prayer and to the diakonia of the word. Our ministry is teaching the word. Their ministry is food distribution. Both are valid ministries and both are necessary for the body of Christ to function well. And so then they they appoint, uh, they chose Stephen and others, these seven men, skipping on down to verse six. They set them before the apostles. In other words, the apostles delegated the authority to the community, pick out these seven men based on the C4 principle. You qualify them. They brought them to the apostles, and now they prayed and laid hands on them. We call that ordination. They were ordained to the ministry of food distribution. And the word of God, now what? this is what happens after that. The word of God continued to increase, increase, oxiano, increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. You see, compare that with verse one. They were increasing the number, and now their multiplication is great. And a great many of the priests, who were the most difficult people to deal with, became obedient to the faith. They didn't convert and say the sinner's prayer and were baptized. That's how we think about it. No, they they submitted. They surrendered to living as a Christian, to doing the works of a Christian, to doing good works. So this is the C4 principle in action here. And I just want to quickly summarize what we just went through. First, we saw Kingdom work is bringing order out of chaos, exactly what God modeled for us in the creation account. We do that when we bring order out of chaos wherever we are. In this case, it was in an ecclesia. Then we see that C4 is a tool of kingdom work. C4 principle will help you align with the call of God and run the race that you've been called to run. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is a great, great text to keep in mind as you consider You've been, you've been called to run a race that God has marked out for you. And you have to keep your eye on Jesus, who is the one who defined the race. He's the purpose for the race. He's the sustainer of you in the race. And your responsibility is to discover the race and get rid of the sin that keeps you from running the race. And then you run the race. So the C4 tool helps you discover those shoulds of life the things you should do, the things you've been created and called by God to do. Then you have a a delegated authority. God works through delegated authority. Don't disdain authority. Don't be independent. Don't be autonomous. Don't consider yourself in charge of your life. That is deception. That's what the enemy wants you to think. That's a lie. If you're going to do the shoulds of your life, you have to be under authority. You have to realize you cannot self-commission. Commissioning is when you are sent. I like to think about it. Calling is authority figures or someone who has authority calls you to a certain work assignment based on your your C4. And then the commissioning agents, those in authority, send you out to do that work assignment. 
That's what the picture is. You cannot self-commission. We typically try to self-commission. We think that's what we can do and we should do, and we don't seek to be commissioned. We should learn that the way God works is he will commission us through authority figures. Diakonia, ministry, by the word diakonia, literally means to execute the commands of another. That's what ministry is. We've turned ministry into like it's the vocation. No, we're all in, we're all called to execute the commands of Christ. So we're all called to ministry. And whatever you do, you're a housewife, you work in a workplace, you work in the church world, you work in public policy, it doesn't matter. It's all ministry. We minister in all licit vocation. Now you can't minister in an illicit vocation. You can't go be a, a bank thief for Christ. You can't go be a prostitute for Christ. You can't do that. You have to have a licit vocation that you have been called and assigned to do by God, and that's where you serve him. You execute his commands as his agent. That's how you fulfill the creation mandate. We have to understand workplace ordination, which is something we don't seem to do well today in our paradigm of Christianity, at least what I see of, of the Christian world. I have not seen this done. I have heard of certain ecclesias that have done it, but very seldom have I heard about it, and it doesn't always sound very profound. But when you start really recognizing what you see in Acts 6 and can truly ordain people to the C4 work assignment God has called them to, no matter what you think of that work assignment, if it's God's call, if you can really do that, I think you're getting the flavor of how to do this correctly. Finally, C4 facilitates alignment and growth. That is, the body of Christ will grow. You want to see growth in your church? Get people aligned with their call. Get them doing what they should do in life. As you do that, that will facilitate growth. That will increase growth. And C4 brings forth facilitation of evangelism. We keep trying to run and do world missions by talking to people. And God has given us the model here. The way that he wants to evangelize is through good works. You doing the works that God has created and called you to do according to his will, according to his ways, in his timing, for his glory, doing the should of your life, which the C4 principle will help you define that should. And you do that, God will use that as light, and he will draw people to himself. Evangelism will be done and it will be done well. And you'll have probably some of the toughest cases that the Holy Spirit will handle very easily and neatly, and you know that you can never do that yourself. It took the Spirit of God to do it, and you will be humble before him, which is a good thing. And the church, the body of Christ, will be blessed. You will be blessed. Everyone around you will be blessed because you're using God's will and God's way in his, for his glory and in his timing to accomplish what he's put you here to do. So may you have grace, much grace to find the shoulds of your life. And may the C4 principle help you discern those good works God's called you to in Jesus' name. Amen.